Well, good morning. Thanks. My name is Shaner uh, Newsom, and my wife and I, Heather, and my daughter, Violet, have been attending here for about a year now. Last July is when we moved back to Texas. I have a confession to make. Um, Don't worry, it has nothing to do with any particular gasoline station chains. Not going to bring that up again. Um, But this week, um, because of circumstances, and actually the last couple of weeks, uh, has left me underprepared, which means I, I come to the pulpit with way too much in my notes. So I am going to ask you to endure with me as I edit on the fly. Um, And I kind of picture at the end, that scene at the end of Napoleon Dynamite's dance, where he's still got dance left, but the music quits and he just runs off stage. So if I do that, just know it's time to move on to what's next in the liturgy. Heather and I and Violet were just out in Oregon. I don't know how long ago it was, um, uh, but it was uh, over Father's Day. And Violet was staying with a friend. And so Heather and I, that Sunday morning, we slept in and got up and went to our favorite coffee shop and sort of um, uh, had our, our drinks and favorite pastries, and we sat and talked in the cool uh, Oregon morning. Um, and I remember saying to her, I, I understand. I understand why our neighbors prefer brunch to church. I'm not saying that's good or right. I'm just sitting there in that moment. I'm like, I get why it's hard to pass up brunch for church. And, and, and it raises a question for us this morning, and I, I wonder if it's a question you ever ask. I'll ask it for us. But do you ever ask, what are we doing here? What is this about? What's it for? Does it matter? Why do I pour all of this energy to get the little ones up and out the door, hopefully all happy with no yelling and no threats to get to church? For what? What's it about? Especially in a world where we have seen the church uh, fumble and fail, maybe failed you personally, maybe harmed you personally. And you've come to a place in your life, in your spiritual journey, where you've questioned the value of being here. Now, obviously, you've overcome that on some level because you're here. Tish Warren, in her book titled The Liturgy of the Ordinary, says this. Many feel that the church, if it's necessary at all, is primarily intended to serve our individual spiritual needs or to group us together with like-minded people, 
a kind of holy fraternity or sorority or whatever, club. If we believe that the church is merely a voluntary society of people with shared values, then it's entirely optional. If the church helps you with your personal relationship with God, great. If not, I know, as she goes on to say, I know a great brunch place that's open on Sunday. Now, I want to um, just say at the outset, often, sometimes, not, maybe not often, sometimes pastors will go down this kind of trail to scold you as a congregation um, that you should make church a priority and, and sort of you, you're uh, here to have your hand slapped for not doing that. That's not my goal. Oftentimes, I, I would submit to you that when pastors do that, they might be doing that because they're also not sure why they're there. And the one thing that makes them know that it's worth being there is that you come to listen to them be there. That's not what this is about. It's an honest question. And the truth is, I think there's a two-way problem here. We do live in a world that has a consumeristic mentality toward life in general and certainly the church specifically. That that's the world we inhabit and, and that's the, the, the waters we swim in. And you and I um, can fall very easily and we do all the time into that kind of mentality where we're just here as consumers and if it doesn't fit whatever, my, whatever I think my need is at the moment, then why go? But I don't think that simply falls on our culture or on the congregation. I think we in the church have um, arranged things in a consumeristic way at times. And we've instructed our parishioners to kind of live in, in that approach to the church. The church is responsible for this. And we are responsible for demanding it and shopping around and getting bored and tired or disappointed and just moving on. And that leads me to the next question. Why? Why are we in this mess? Why is this true? Why is the church and its impact and its place in people's lives on the decline. I think there's many reasons for that, and the answer is certainly not simple. But I think at the heart of it is something of a loss of what's compelling about the story of God. Maybe we, the church, in, in our own buying into the consumeristic mentality have in so doing lost something of what's compelling about the story of God. A story that's to be embodied here by us, among us, for us, for our neighbors, and for the world. And I would like to submit to you as we enter into a series on the Psalms that I think the Psalms invite us into a richer, richer, deeper story. One that, if we'll take it up, just might be compelling, at least to us. And if it's compelling to us, then it might be compelling to our neighbors, to the watching world. I think the Psalms carry us down a path to that compelling story if we'll let them. 
The Psalms, as we think about them and move forward, I want you to just hold in mind a couple of things that we need to think about the Psalms as the songbook of life. And this songbook of life can speak to our hearts in deep and compelling ways. But it's also the songbook for the world. And because it is, it can teach us something about the story of us, our neighbors, and the world. And because it is, it can form in us a love for each other, our neighbor, and our city. That's what the Psalter holds out for us. The songbook of life, the songbook of the world. So as I move into chapter 6, Psalm 6, I want to just set the scene a little bit. I can't do a full introduction to the Psalms. That would um, take too long. But it opens with Psalm 1, and Psalm 1 opens with a promise of happiness. You may know it as blessed is the one. But that word is better translated as happy. And then Psalm 1 and 2 form a kind of bookended uh, introduction to the Psalms. And Psalm 2 ends with the same um, invitation to happiness. That those who enter the pathway that the Psalms will lead us through in five books that move through all kinds of human emotion, all kinds of, of responses to God and questions to God, moves to this crescendo of praise and worship of God. That's how it ends. Psalm 146 and 150 is just full of praise. And so the invitation is into the promise of happiness for the one who walks in the way of the contents of this book. And it ends with a, um, a gathering up of all of that story into praise and joy and hope. But our psalm today is a psalm of grief. Our psalm is a, 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 a psalm that is full and in some ways relentless in its grief. As a matter of fact, in the, super, the superscription, that's the right word for it. As I said it, I, I questioned myself. It says, according to the Shemineth or Shumanit, on the lower register, the low end, the low notes. David is directing the music leader to play this song in minor keys, to bring it down a bit, to actually um, embody in music the content of the song, which is grief and question. And I'm just going to say it from the out front that maybe from, from just what the Psalms are inviting us to see as it invites us and says, happy is the one that walks this path and then takes us down this deep um, pit into grief and questions that maybe something about what's not compelling in the way we embody the story of God is maybe we've forgotten how to grieve. Have you ever considered that? Maybe the watching world looks at the church and says, you don't get my pain. What's compelling about that? 
I find hip hop music, rap music pretty compelling. And in large part because I think it's really honest about grief and suffering, pain. Psalm 6 invites us to enter in and to believe that the pathway to happiness through to ascending joy is a pathway that leads us through grief and an acknowledgement of it with full-throated honesty. It's a psalm about suffering. It's a psalm certainly about one man's experience, but here it is given to us in the songbook of life, the songbook of the world. Mike Berbiglia, a comedian um, and an often contributor to This American Life, he says, he confesses that, he says, I'm Italian, my family's Italian, but we're more, not real Italian, we're more like Olive Garden Italians. And when I throw out to you that, the, that maybe what's lost in, in the, something of our um, living out the story of God is, and it's being compelling is that we don't live out grief well. We don't tell a story honestly about grief. Maybe you think that I, I don't really know deep suffering. You may think, yeah, I've suffered, but I'm sort of like an olive garden sufferer. And what I'm here to tell you is that grief is not a, a competition. This psalm, we don't know what is the cause of David's grief. It's, I think, vague for a reason because it's intended to catch up all of our griefs and sorrows. I was once in campus ministry. I did that for 12 years. And one of the symptoms that, you're, that it's time to maybe move on from campus ministry working with college students is when you can no longer um, listen to an 18-year-old grieve about breaking up with their high school boyfriend or girlfriend with any kind of sympathy or empathy. Because what happens to us is we become sort of jaded and hardened to that, and we forget that that's a real grief. Now, there's certainly other kinds of griefs. And maybe other kinds of prof more profound grief. That's a real grief. And it needs to be named and embodied and inhabited in the context of the story of what God is doing in the world. The vagueness, the open-endedness of this is on purpose because the invitation is for us to bring all of our griefs to the table. And to give them voice or to at least allow David to give them voice for us. All of us suffer. All of us grieve. All of us are surrounded by grief. We bump into it every day, whether we acknowledge it or not. Just yesterday, I was at a funeral for somebody I love dearly. This week, I read an article from a pastor who buried his wife young because she took her own life. 
in the throes of mental illness. Grief is all around us. So there's two parts to the psalm as we want to break it down and move into it. So let's do that. There's two parts, that, and we're going to deal with the, the two aspects of the psalm in two parts. One is the content of the psalm. What is David saying about grief and suffering? And how is that supposed to instruct us? How do the words of this psalm want to change us in our relationship to suffering? And then the second thing I want us to focus on is just the form of the psalm. I'm going to tell you it's a song. He's given it to the choir master, the worship leader, and the author intended for us to sing it or chant it or say it or pray it together. That's its intention. He wrote it about himself as a prayer in his own grief, but he wrote it for a community as a prayer for that community to sing together. So that's what we're looking at. So what is its content? It's, I've, I've mentioned it's a content. The content of the psalm is largely about grief. As I was thinking about this, I uh, remembered a Twitter thread that I came across recently, and it sent me on a search, and I found an article by Michael Gunger, who is a singer-songwriter in the Christian music genre, And he wrote, this is a little dated, but it's back in uh, 2012. And here's what he says in this article he wrote. He says, approximately 70% of the Psalms, two-thirds to seven, he says 70%, it's often said two-thirds, of the Psalms are laments, two-thirds. Just let that sit with you. Two-thirds of the prayer book and the song book of the Bible, even if you don't buy of life in the world. If that's, if I've said too much in that, you don't, you don't, you won't accept that. You will nod along with me that it's the songbook of the Bible. Yes. Okay. Good. So that it should lead us to to something of how we should think about our own prayers and worship. Yes. Two thirds of it is lament, is naming out loud grief, and sorrow. And here's what he goes on to say, and this again is not, I'm not trying to shame anyone. I don't know his intention. I'll give him the benefit of that. He wasn't either, I don't think. 70% of the Psalms are laments. Approximately 0% of the top 150 Christian worship songs. 150, 0%, he says, are laments. 2012, so it's dated. That's telling. Maybe our neighbors and maybe our own hearts are watching on and going, do you not know me at all and what I'm going through? And the Psalms say yes. This indicates that maybe, maybe we've missed something in our own worship. As he pointed this out, he says, I got a lot of responses. Some said something to effect, that's sad. Others said things like, why would we have to lament? 
Why would we do that? Maybe you're feeling that now. Is that really what we're supposed to do as Christians? Why would we have to lament? We have Jesus. Some even accuse him, he says, me of living in the wrong covenant. Because we know, right, the end of the story. We know that Jesus has been raised from the dead. We know that somehow we have been rescued in Christ and his resurrection from our sorrows and our sufferings. And so we maybe perhaps think that means that it's wrong for us to enter into and sit in our grief and each other's grief. And the songbook of the Bible says, no, that's not actually the way through it to the joy of the resurrection. The way through it to the joy of the resurrection is to give voice to your laments and your sorrows and your questions and your confusion and your anger, yes, anger with God. More recently, this is what I was actually looking for in a Twitter thread. This is from 2021. A guy who's doing research on the Psalms and, and Christian, you know, contemporary Christian worship. He says in the top 25 of that Christian worship music, He says, there's not a single question ever posed to God. And our Psalm's full of them. How long, O Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long? The Psalms are full of God. How long must I endure what I am enduring? What he goes on to say is, prick the Psalter, prick the Psalms. And it bleeds the cries of the oppressed, pleading with God to act on their behalf. It's a sustained look at suffering. Psalm 6 is. The psalmist says that in his suffering, he feels like he is under God's wrath. He is under God's thumb, being pressed down. And I don't, as I read the psalm, I don't actually believe that the psalmist is being punished by God. I don't think that he's saying, I know this is absolutely what's happening. He's saying that under the weight of what I'm experiencing, this is what pours out of me of why God are you after me? And so he feels like God is both um, um, acting upon him, being pressed down by him. And at the same time, he feels like God is nowhere to be found. Have you ever felt such things? God, why are you punishing me? Tell me what it is and I'll stop so you can stop. And in the next moment, God, where are you? Where is the comfort that I know you to be, that you've promised to be? Verse 4, he says, turn, O Lord, return, come back. O God, it feels like you've left me. I need you here. I've said in my own life, I don't need to know things about God. I desperately need to know that God is here with me. Suffering for David is this overwhelming kind of cosmic moment in which he feels like God is simultaneously far away and right in his lap. 
At the same time, somewhere, I don't know, asleep at the switch. We've prayed in our own lives, God, are we off your map? Have we gone, have, you know, we wandered off and, and, and you, now you don't know where we are. How do we get back? And at the same time, he feels close enough to be pressing David down. David's grief is unescapable, inescapable. He says in his suffering, he is languishing. He is wasting away. He feels it to his bones. His body is wasting away in the midst of his grief. Have you ever witnessed that? Have you ever experienced that? He's terrified. His soul is frightened. His per whole person is troubled. And the grief is inescapable. He says he is weary with moaning, with grief. His grief is so deep that he moans in pain and physical emotion. And it's made him weary. He goes on to say that he is drowning in the tears that he has shed. The language of, um, there of, of him being drenched, his couch with tears, it's, it's the image is that he's drowning in his own tears. And his eyes are wasting away because of grief. I got to tell you that this kind of honesty in the Psalms is why, I, I hate to say things like this, maybe I shouldn't. It's why I'm a Christian. Because this is real and this is human. And if the resurrection means anything, it means something about our humanity and God's care for it in this broken world. David in verse six begins, he, he asks his questions, but you, O Lord, how long? It's like the psalmist is trying to pull himself out of a nosedive of grief. He says, my bones are troubled. Grief is breaking my bones. My soul is troubled. Grief is pushing my life down. It's suffocating me and I can't stand it any longer. And he tries to reorient his vision to sort of shift his gaze, maybe find a horizon uh, upon which he can look in hope. To find something to say about God that will give him relief. And he says, but you, O Lord. And in the text, it feels like there should be an ellipsis there. But you, O Lord. And, and we, we should imagine David thinking about what he should put into that phrase, but you, O Lord. If you don't know what an ellipsis is, it's those three little dots on your phone um, as you're getting that dopamine drip, knowing that somebody's hopefully responding to your text. That's an ellipsis. It's this holding place of... Something's coming. Sorry. But you, O oh Lord, what? What, what? what do you fill in the blank there? You, O oh Lord, are full of grace or power or, or might or worth. The scriptures are full of options for what David might have said. But you, O oh Lord, are a shield about me from the Psalms. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger. Psalm 86. Psalm 92. But you, O Lord, are on high forever. 
Psalm 102, but you, O Lord, are enthroned forever. Lamentations, but you, O Lord, reign forever. Jeremiah, but you, O Lord, know me. And David gets to this point where there's something that he's searching for to say about God. And he says, but you, O Lord, ellipsis, how long? And he goes back into his grief and says, how long must I endure this grief? And like an airline pilot in a nosedive, the psalmist is pulling back on the stick and he's throttling up full power and it's not enough yet. It's just not enough to correct his falling out of the sky. I'm trying to correct my grief with something true. I'm trying to counteract my suffering with something I can say about God, but all I can muster is, but you, O oh Lord, how long? And that's what we think often. What we think is we need a proposition, an explanation for our suffering, some way to get our mind around it, to understand it. Then at least I can perhaps control it or come to terms with it or shove it wherever we shove it. One particular self-help website says this about suffering. He says it, it says it's a result of self-pity. When we discover that our self-pity explains our suffering, we emerge at last. Eventually, our self-pity shrinks and disappears. We're not angry anymore. We don't get depressed anymore. We're not stuck anymore. We sail free. And I think often the church won't confess that in a doctrinal statement, but we embody that often in the way we handle grief. We look for answers for the problem of evil or Lewis, C.S. Lewis did it with his discussion of the problem of pain. That won't do it. And the psalmist won't let us go there, but you, O oh Lord, how long? The psalmist has given up trying to address his suffering with an explanation. He sees that even with an explanation, his suffering remains. He knows that there is no explanation that will solve the problem. What I need for you, O oh Lord, is to act. And this is what he asked God to do. So turn, O oh Lord, and deliver my life. Turn, Lord, because in his suffering, it feels like you have turned away. I need you to turn back and act on my behalf. Feels like God has forgotten me. I feel like I'm on the edge of death. Are you tired of it already? It's relentless. Psalm 88, this psalm turns pretty heavily to a praise. Psalm 88 just goes on and on and ends with nothing but an acknowledgement of suffering. It's worth your meditation. It's in the songbook of the Bible, the prayer book of the Bible. The psalmist wants us 
to feel the depths of the grief, even as he turns at the end to God. He turns and acknowledges that God hears him. He knows that he does. Seven times the psalmist calls God Yahweh, covenant God, the God who is near to his people, who has committed his own name to our goodness and our salvation, and David appeals to it. David appeals to God, and he's confident that God hears him. Just as in Exodus, we're told that the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I've heard their cry. And David is appealing to that God, the one who hears his people who hears their cries and is moved by their cries, who holds their tears in his bottle, who loves them. And by the end of the psalm, he knows that God has heard him. Three times he knows it. The Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. He accepts my prayer. And the psalmist wants you to sing your grief, But he wants you to sing that too. He wants us to sing this too. He wants us to sing that the Lord hears us and he hears our cry. He wants us to sing that we follow a God who hears. The way the New Testament picks up on this is in Hebrews, we're told that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. We have a Savior who has entered into our griefs and our suffering and our sorrow. Hebrews 2 says that this, that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death. Jesus enters in and we are to sing certainly of the God who hears and enters into our suffering for our sake and for our healing. So all of that to say, the content of the psalm teaches us as the church to pray pray our grief, to sing our grief, to sing our sorrows, to sing our questions, to raise them to God, and to believe that they're not antithetical to spiritual maturity. They're actually the pathway to it. They're actually the mark of it. If not, then when Paul says that we're those who weep with those who weep. He doesn't know what he's talking about. He also says we rejoice with those who rejoice. Both. Yes, absolutely. But both. Both. All right. Grief's content, or the psalm's content is grief. Grief's form. It's a song. A song. That means it's to be sung among us. And he doesn't um, give it simply, it's not simply a song, it is something that he writes that he pours out of his own heart, but he gives it over to the one who leads worship for the people of God, the choir master. And so this means that it's to be sung by the congregation. In This American Life, um, there's an episode called Breakup, and I'm going to have to be quick with this. Starly Kine, she wants to write a breakup song. Um, 
And she describes it this way. It was hands down the corniest relationship. She's talking about a relationship he had, she had with this, this man. And, and their breakup is what le- has led her to want to write this breakup song. And here's how she describes the relationship. It was the corniest relationship I've ever been in. And by corniest, I mean greatest. We'd pass entire evenings just complimenting each other. We took hand-holding to new heights. We listened to hours and hours of music, music teenager style, playing one song after another while smiling a lot. I don't quite remember how Phil Collins, uh, the Phil Collins phase began, so they went through this Phil Collins phase. I think it was one, like one of those things that started off ironically with Anthony lip-syncing adorably to Against All Odds one night. But over time, it became less and less ironic until one day we were actually Phil Collins fans. The point is that her experience of breakup is so cliche, and yet when her breakup happens, all she can come up with as Anthony is leaving to say to him, how can I just let you walk away? Just let you leave without a trace. When I stand here taking, she doesn't go on, but that's the rest of the lyric, right? Every breath with you, oh, you're the only one who really knew me at all. So interesting that she went through this phase and it was ironic and funny and silly. But when breakup came, when the moment of, 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 of real uh, grief and loss, what she came up with was the words of Phil Collins' song. And that's what David has gifted us with here. Is when you don't know how to sing your grief. Or maybe you don't have grief and you don't know how to sing my grief. David has given us a a form of it to sing together so that we might sing our griefs together. Because here's what I'm here to tell you. I need you to sing my griefs with me. And you need me to sing yours with you. We need to be given the words. And the scriptures have given us the words of grief and joy to sing together, to speak together, to pray together. Because we are not in this alone. And we were never intended to be. The Psalms are like this. They give us words of life for our sorrows and joys. Starley King goes on to actually write her own breakup song with Phil Collins' help. It's a really interesting episode worth listening to. But what she says about this is that when she was going through that moment, it it was easy for her to believe that what she was going through was singular, that she was the only one experiencing it. Except Phil Collins taught her that that's not true. And David's here to teach us the same thing. We need to sing our griefs together. We need to sing our faith together. There are times I come in here and I can't sing the words of the songs. It's because I don't, I'm not, I, I, emotionally I can't. But I'm here because you can. 
And when that's happening, you know what you're doing for me? Is you're carrying me into the truth of those words. That's how we worship together. That's what we're for, each other. I've often said to people who said, I just don't know if I can believe this anymore. And what I will tell them is, that's okay. I believe for you. Keep coming. Keep coming. Let us believe for you. Let us weep with you and for you. Let us hope and sing with joy for you. And you can sit there in your pew and weep if you need to, even while we sing our joy. And I'm here to tell you that that is the compelling reality of God redeeming us as a people for the life of the world. Because we are here to um, retell the story, to rehearse the story in all its fullness and truth to the back row. For each other, with each other. Recently, there was a general assembly, the national meeting. It's the 50th anniversary of this denomination, and there was a a hymn sing. And Sandra McCracken was about to sing, We Will Feast in the House of Zion, which is like Psalm 146 through 50. The new heavens, the new earth, the hope of redemption and restoration and healing. And she said, that day is coming. And we're going to sing this song and we're going to sing ourselves forward into that. And I thought, can't say it any better than that. We worship together and we worship ourselves forward into the truth of the redeeming work of Christ who is coming back to heal all our aches, all our pains, all our sorrows. And that includes our griefs and our songs of grief. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your grace and your mercy. We pray that you would bless us with a hope in the midst of sorrow, with a hope in the midst of our confusion. Lord, teach us teach us to live the story full-throatedly in honesty, in all hope and joy and knowledge of our salvation, even in our griefs even in our questions, even in our doubts and fears. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.